Well, welcome everybody. It's uh, good to see you today and for those online, welcome to you as well. I invite you to hold your Bible open there. If you haven't already shut it or you haven't flicked off the screen, you might want to just go back there quick. Sorry if you've already shut down Um, because we're going to be working our way through uh, that chapter this morning. What's something that's amazed you recently? Something you've gone, wow, that is incredible. Have a think. Maybe it's something that you've seen in life or on TV or on Facebook, something you've read, you've heard about. Maybe it's some architectural engineering marvel. Maybe it's someone who's been especially kind or generous and you thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. Maybe it's some medical breakthrough. Maybe it's something in nature. And whatever you've seen, whatever you've heard has astounded you. If there's one verse in this chapter that Asher uh, has read to us, um, in chapter 3, Joshua 3, I think the verse, verse 5, is one that kind of sums up um, what this chapter is, is all about. Joshua says to the people, get ready, come on, let's, let's get ready. For today, God is going to do something amazing. The literal translation from the Hebrew is God is going to do something that you will be astounded by. Something that will be jaw-dropping. Or wherever you want to turn that, knock your socks off, I don't know how you phrase that sense of, wow, God did that. What's about to happen for the people of Israel is that they've been waiting for this since, since Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. God's promise to Abraham years previously, to, to your offspring, I will give this land. This is, this is about to be fulfilled. They're so close to getting this land that God has promised them. Their wandering is over. All this between them and this amazing land that God's promised is a river, the River Jordan. And Joshua says, people, you're going to be astounded by what God is going to do as we get to this point in our journey. The Israelites, they're still in Shittim, this town, this this place where they had been in chapter 2. From there, remember, Joshua sent two spies to go into the land and check out Jericho just to make sure they knew exactly what it was like. The spies come back and report to, to Joshua what had happened to them, what they'd seen, and he, they make this statement, God has given us this land. It's ours for the taking. All the, people heart, all the people's hearts are melting in fear because of us. And this was, this was exactly the words Joshua was hoping to hear. So immediately he, he dispatches runners to, to go through the camp you know, two and a half million people, it's a pretty big camp, to tell the people that tomorrow we're going to break up camp and we're going to move closer to our destination, the Jordan River. And so we see in verse 1, that we start this chapter, early in the morning, early, bright and early, early in the morning, the people set off. 
Now, this is no easy task. Um, the journey itself is, is pretty easy. It's 12 kilometres over flat land. Probably do that in a day. But two and a half million people to get up, to get packed up and get moving. Not just the people, but think of all their livestock, all their possessions. Everything's got to be ready. I'm sure the buzz around those 12 tribes as they, as they packed up, put down their tents, packed everything up, put them onto wagons, whatever they were using to, to carry all this stuff. I'm sure what was going around the camp was the same. This is the day. By the end of tomorrow, we will be on the brink of our dream. A new life. A new land. Tomorrow will be the start of a new future for us. Now normally at this point in the Jericho, um, opposite Jericho, the river, um, the river's about 25 to 30 metres wide and maybe up to a metre deep. In parts it was actually fordable, just rocks that they could get over. So not a creek, certainly where they are now, but not insurmountable. But as the people start marching towards the river and look at what is before them, their joy, their excitement disperses. It just goes. What they see is confusing, it's frustrating, it's demoralising. The Jordan River is, is uncrossable. It's in flood. Something that Jordan did every harvest time with the, the melting snow from the north up near Mount Hebron running down to um, the, the Dead Sea. So normally this, this usually gentle, quiet-flowing little river is now a raging, fast-flowing, deep, swirling torrent. Probably about a, a, a one and a half kilometres wide, so a huge expanse of water, and up to four metres deep. And what's more, the, the tangled bush and, and the shrubs and, and dense growth that normally surrounds the Jordan River is now underwater. A thick undergrowth of weeds and branches that could easily trip someone up as they waded through the, the, the edges of the river. And two and a half million people, their livestock, their wagons, have to pass through this river. We see in verse 2 that the people camp beside this river for the next three days. Three days watching this torrent of water rushing past them eroding all, the, all their confidence, all their hope, all their dreams have gone. And you can imagine them sitting around their campfires at night, bemoaning what was before them. Maybe the strong will be brave enough to, to get across this flood, but how do we cross with our children, with the ill, with our animals? How do the wagons get through this river? And disappointment begins to weigh heavy on the hearts of the people as they listen through the nights to this water just rushing past their camp. They camp there for three days. Why three days? Why didn't Joshua send his officials through the first night they got there and said, hey guys, it's looking tough, but tomorrow we're moving on. But he didn't. God told him to let the people stay there for three days. Why three days? Why three long, 
challenging, frustrating, disappointing days, looking across to Canaan on the other side of the river, feeling more and more miserable every day. Their long journey to the promised land appeared to be appeared to be, have ended so close to their goal. Why did God bring them to the edge of this river and make them look with longing and frustration to the land he had promised his forefathers, their forefathers, now so close and yet so far away? His reason seems clear as we, as we keep going through this passage was to drive home in their hearts the seeming impossibility of tomorrow. God waited three days to allow their feelings of of hopelessness and helplessness and inadequacy to sink, really sink in to their hearts and souls. He forced them to wait, probably even as the river was rising even further, until all hope had vanished. Why did God choose this part, this time of the year, the harvest, the time when the river was going to be in flood? Why this part of the river? Why not go somewhere else where it was much easier to cross, even in flood time? Because God wanted to show the people that he is God. So he'd get to the people to a place of, of complete trust, complete dependence on him that the only way they only get through this river was if God did something amazing. Someone said, God can turn a no way into a highway. And he does that for the Israelites. So we see Joshua sends his officials through the camp, giving them instructions on what they're to do. You look at this when it starts off, it's, it's, a lot of this is, is focusing on the Ark of the Covenant. This, um, this symbol of God's provision, protection, faithfulness to his people all through the last 40 years. We don't know exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, but it may have been something like this. A gold-covered box, big, not too big, big enough to, to have to carry it, but it's not um, overly huge, um, with reminders of God's mercy, his provision and his faithfulness. Stone tablets the stone tablets that God wrote with his very hand. The Ten Commandments were in this box. Also a pot of manna. Remember the manna that came down every morning for the people to to gather up uh, like bread for the day. A reminder of God's gracious provision. And Aaron's rod, a dead stick that God used in Egypt to make a change into a snake to convince Pharaoh that God was powerful. Another time God used it to sprout leaves and almonds um, to show his power. A monument to God's faithfulness. But it was much more than that. You'll see these two beings on the top of the the ark. These were cherubims, angel-like figures, kneeling down. And this was called the mercy seat. And above there, on their wings, was where God would come and dwell among his people. The presence of God would descend on this ark as they travelled through the wilderness. So this, this ark, this ark of the covenant, was a significant part of, of the Israelites' faith. Reminders of God, symbol 
of his faithfulness, his provision, his presence. So as they're done through the whole time in the wilderness, as they move from camp to camp, the the Levitical priests are the ones that were to carry this ark. And we see in this this passage in verses uh, 3 to 4 that they were to, to, um, the people were to follow them as the the priests led this ark um, where they were going. Social distancing is not something new. Um, Not 1.5 metres, but 2,000 cubits, just, uh, just over 900 metres. So you think where we are here today, halfway down to Stud Road on, on Wellington Road is about 900 metres. That's a, a pretty big distance. Why such this huge distance between the ark and God's people? Partly because it enabled more people to see the ark if people were thronged up close to it, this is two and a half million people, those at the back are not going to see much of the ark, but with it's way out in front, they get a chance to see it and know where to follow. But also because the ark was a symbol of God's presence. There were strict rules about who could come anywhere near the ark. No one could come really close. No one definitely could touch it. People would die if they touched the ark because it was God's presence. No one could approach God that close. So even oh, the ark had poles. They couldn't hold it. Their hands had to have wooden poles that they could actually lift up. And when the ark was in front of the people, it was as though God was leading his people into the river. People coming after him. We see a, a, another commandment that um, God told Joshua to tell the people to do, and that was to consecrate themselves in verse 5. If they're going to follow God, God wants them in the right state. He wants them in the right condition. And so they have to give themselves completely over to him, to consecrate themselves. Forty years earlier, um, the previous generation of Israelites had to concentrate, uh, consecrate themselves to God at Mount Sinai. And this involved washing their clothes, abstaining from sex for two nights. A symbolic way of, of focusing their attention on God, cleaning out the the dirt of their clothes, getting ready for what God was going to do. There's one more instruction that the people have to follow before they can start their journey, and that's in verse 7. We come to verse 8, we'll read that. So the Lord said to Joshua, "'Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel.'" so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Any doubt that people have that, Mo, that Joshua is their leader, God's going to show today that that's not, there's no doubt of that. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. The priests carrying the Ark are to go all through this water and stand in the centre of the normal path of the river. The people are about to see God do something amazing. As soon as the priest's feet touch that part of the water, the waters are going to stop. We see in verse 13, stop further up the, the river where God will block the water from coming and there'll be dry land. 
just as God provided a path through the Red Sea for the for the um, the forefather, the you know the forebears of these Israelites today, God is going to provide a clear path through the water. Now, there's nothing in this script, in, in this um, account in Joshua that would indicate this is just a coincidence or some natural cause that caused this water to stop further up the river. Um, God could have done that. He could have orchestrated this massive blockage at this town of Adam um, and stopped the river from flowing. But even to do that in a flooding river, just boom like that, is God at work. The fact that God announces this is going to happen just at this moment is further proof that this is something miraculous. This is God at work. This is not just something that happened and let's let's take advantage of this. Let's get across the river now. This is God doing what God does. And if God can do this, Joshua tells the people in verse 10, he will most certainly give them victory over their enemies. These listed tribes that um, he lists there in, in, um, in, in the verses. God is doing something amazing. Remember the promises of God in chapter 1? I will give you the land. I will give you victory over your enemies. I will be with you. Promises of provision, promises of presence. God is with his people. Now, just think for a moment of the courage of these priests carrying a box on their shoulders, walking through the, the edges of the river with all this mud and, and um, tangled branches, everything they have to step over to get to the, the true banks of the river and then to put their foot out to touch the water so they can then get across. What, what faith, what courage to go that far and then to go into these, this, this, this torrent of water that's, that's rushing through. They press on in obedience and they reach the river's edge, the natural part of the river and nothing has changed. The river's still in flood, it's still rushing past but as soon as they, their feet touch the water the waters stop. God acts. The promised miracle happens. A dry riverbed opens up before the, the priests. And the priests walk across on dry ground and stand in the middle of this riverbank with the ark on their shoulders. And the whole nation of Israel, is, their jaws drop. This is what God is doing? This is what God is doing for us? Seeing the people, the Israelites cross the Jordan, encourages us to take the same, the same steps of faith in our own lives. Whenever God leads us into something different, something new, do we trust God when the future is uncertain, when, when we can't see the way forward for all the stuff that's going on, when what we do see is frightening, seemingly impossible for us to have to face. Maybe when he leads us to a new job, 
a new career path. When he tells us to have a conversation with a neighbour or a student friend about our faith. When we're invited to consider a new role in church, to to be part of a ministry, to, to serve in some way, do we trust God? Do we trust God to be with us, to help us, to equip us for what is ahead? All we need to do, like the priests, is take one step, to take that first step into the unknown, to dip our feet into the deep water. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church and he writes, faith always means risk. Everything in life is risk, he says. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 8 says, when you work in a quarry, stones might fall on you and crush you. When you chop wood, there is danger of each stroke of your axe. Such are the risks of life. There's nothing we can do, Warren says, that doesn't have some element of risk in it. You may remember um, the movie Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. Anyone seen that? Most people have seen that. Okay, there's an an amazing scene in this movie when Indiana Jones is on this path, has to cross this huge chasm and get to the other side. It's too far to jump, too far to to, um, to leap, to step. So what does he do? Let's have a watch. have the same faith going back but I'm <laughs> it's not a bad picture of faith faith is stepping out and doing what God has asked you to do and you can't see what will happen at the end you don't know exactly what God is going to do but you know that he's with you he knows that he will empower you 
and you step out in faith. That's the sort of faith that these priests demonstrated as they dipped their, um, their feet into the, um, the water. Sorry, that one shouldn't be up there just yet. I'll take that back to there. One minute there's water rushing by and next minute, boom, dry ground. God has done something amazing. Now imagine spies from Jericho. If the Israelites can go and be spies, Jericho people can do that as well. Imagine they're watching what's going on on the other side of the bank, on the, on the other side of the river, seeing this water just stop. The jaws drop in amazement. Rahab had told the Israelite spies when they were there and, and what they reported back in chapter 2 that the hearts of the people were melting in fear. That was when the Israelites were on the other side of the river, way, way back. Now, God has opened up this way through the river. The Jerichoan spies had never seen anything like this in their lives. Their fear levels have now gone through the roof. And with um, jelly legs shaking, hearts racing, they rush back to Jericho. Oh no, we are done for. And they make their way to the city. I'm sure Rahab hears what's going on and she's, her heart's racing too. Her rescuers are on the way. Her freedom is coming and she just checks the window to make sure that red scarlet cord is still hanging there so that she'll be safe. What's going on in the minds and the hearts of the Israelites as they step into this dry riverbed and start making their way past the priests and the ark to the other side? Wow, look at this. This is amazing. God has done this for us. He is going to be with us every step of the way. I imagine there was a definite spring in everybody's feet as they walked past the ark and got to the other side of the river. God had done the seemingly impossible. Okay, we'll go to this picture I wanted to show you. Um, Seth Conroy is a singer. He's written a song about God doing the impossible. I'm not going to sing that. You would not want me to do that. But we're going to read it. I'll read it to you, okay? Give us faith to move these mountains. Move us till our trust is boundless. When there is no way, you make a way. Give us faith to walk on water. Every step is by your power. When there is no way, you make a way. You're the God of the impossible. Only you are Lord of all. Power, glory, strength belong to you. You're the God of might and majesty. One day every eye will see and all the world will bow before the God of the impossible. This is our God, the God of the impossible. He did something amazing for the Israelites that day. He still does, can and does amazing things for us today. But the fact that God can do the impossible doesn't mean that he always will. There's no promise here in Joshua or anywhere in scripture that God will remove every challenge, every difficulty, every crisis that we face in life. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan and start taking the land, generally they had to face and deal with issues as they came up on their own. 
Yes, there were times when God intervened. We're going to hear about that next week. Um, but they still had to fight the battles. They still had to get out there and get their hands dirty. It wasn't all just look, let's walk through and God will do it all for us. Life always throws up difficulties and challenges, crises. And we might pray to God to take that away. Sometimes he does in miraculous ways. Sometimes he doesn't. In early 1996, four months after Glenda and I had left our families in New Zealand and arrived in Australia, my mum went to hospital for a a simple operation, routine procedure, keyhole surgery, uh, to tidy up some scarring of an operation she'd had previously. My mum was in good health. Um, She was due to be released a couple of days after the operation. But unbeknown to anyone, particularly the doctor, he accidentally pierced her bowel as he was doing the surgery. Uh, There's a medical term for it. What happens is that nurses and doctors will know what happens. It's pretty gory. Um, And mum's body um, quickly deteriorated. Doctors did all they could, but there was no way they could stop this and they said she is going to die within days. So I caught a flight back to New Zealand, the first I could, uh, left Glenda and the kids here, um, praying the whole way that God would spare mum or he would at least give me a chance to see her before she passed away. Uh, I had to fly through Auckland to get down to Nelson. Once I got to Auckland and landed, a friend met me there. Our family had contacted him to meet me at the airport. Um, and I received word that mum had passed away while I was flying across the Tasman. God didn't do an amazing thing for me or our family that day, at least not how we kind of were praying that God would would act for us on on our behalf. A young girl called Abby had an accident that left her brain starved for oxygen for 30 minutes. Doctors kept her in an induced coma when she got to hospital and eventually told her parents that it was unlikely that she would survive what had happened. If she did, she would have very, very little brain function. The do not resuscitate sign was put above her bed. Abby had been the oldest, our, our oldest son, Joshua's girlfriend, until a few months before this happened. They'd, they'd broken up. So people knew Abby in our church and our family um, and they started praying as soon as they heard this news of what had happened to Abby. They prayed, we prayed, prayed and prayed and God did an amazing thing. She regained consciousness and started on this, what has been a very long road to recovery. Joshua and Abby got married about two years after this accident. I had the privilege of marrying them. And now they have two beautiful children. Abby still has difficulty speaking uh, and has mobility issues because of the damage to her brain, uh, but is working through um, therapy to, to deal with that. She's a loving, caring, generous, fun-loving person and a wonderful, wonderful wife and mother. God did the impossible for Abby. He did an amazing thing that astounded everyone 
and especially the medical staff who said, this should not happen. God worked. The danger is that when we, when God doesn't appear to answer our prayers with the miraculous, we begin to doubt God. Is he really powerful? Is he really omnipotent? Does, does he really care about me? Are his promises for me? Or are they not? Is my, is my faith strong enough to believe in the impossible? We read a story like Joshua 3 and we ask, why doesn't God do that for me? Why doesn't God do that for us? The question we should be asking is what does this story tell us about God? This is God's book about God. The big God story I referred to in in the first week in our series these, these Old Testament stories aren't there to give us instructions on, on how we're to live for today. Not, not, they do, but not to the extent of asking for miracles every time. If, if God did this for the Israelites, we might think, well, God's going to do it for me. I'm a follower of God. He'll do that for me. But they, the stories are there to instruct us on who God is. The God in the book of Joshua is the same God we follow today. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He never changes. His his character is eternal, unchanging. In their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart put it like this. No Bible narrative was written specifically about you. You can always learn a great deal from these narratives, but you can never assume that God expects you to do exactly the same that Bible characters did or have the same things happen to you that happened to them. So we can't take this story in Joshua 3 and expect God to do the miraculous, to part the waters of our Jordan every time we call out to him whatever challenge we're facing, whatever difficulty we're facing. So if we can't do that, what does the story say to us? It teaches us that God, the God of Joshua, is the Lord of all creation, of all time, of eternity. And God is able to do the impossible. He works all things according to his purposes and his will. Paul tells us this uh, in Romans, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And that's the key phrase. We tend to assume that God's purpose for his children is our happiness, our enjoyment, our life. But if we read the next verse of Romans 8, we'll discover what God's purposes for us really are. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to his image, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's purpose is that we are conformed to Christ's image. His purpose is to restore in us the image of God that was 
broken, that was marred, that was defaced when sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. His purpose for us, those redeemed through Christ, is to make us more and more like our Saviour, more and more like Jesus. And that's how we're to face our difficulties, our crises, our challenges, to see them as opportunities God might use to shape us how he wants us to be, to become more dependent on him, to produce in us Christ-like character, the fruits of the Spirit. Sometimes God does act and intervene. Sometimes he does do amazing things like he did for Abby. But other times he acts in ways that we don't understand. We don't see the bigger picture. We're not, we don't see the results that, that, that we might be wanting in that situation. Seeing ourselves, seeing our difficulties, our challenges in that perspective, Joshua 3 provides us with a better understanding of who God is, what God can do to achieve his purposes. This is God's story about himself. God's story about his plan for creation, for redemption. And we're part of that story. This is our story. The way God works in the story, our story, may not be the same as he worked in Joshua's life, but he's still the God of the impossible. He's still the God who amazes, who astounds. He still makes a way through overwhelming problems, overwhelming obstacles that we face as individuals, as we face as a church. The Israelites had this Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his presence, lead them into the water. Their eyes were fixed on this gold-encased box as they claimed the promise God gave them to, um, to, to take this land. God's grace, mercy, faithfulness, presence for us is represented as shown in Jesus Christ, who has promised never to leave us, to never forsake us, and where to follow him. What do you do when you're facing difficult tasks, the impossible? We do what Peter did. As he took that step into the, into the lake to walk towards Jesus, he fixed his eyes on Jesus, watching him. And the minute Peter took his eyes off Jesus and thought, oops, I'm a person, we don't walk on water, he started to sink. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. And whatever storms we find ourselves seeking him, seeking to understand his, his purposes, seeking to understand his faithfulness, following him, being where he directs us. A Gordon might stretch before us today. Challenges that may seem too hard for us as individuals or as a church um, to bear. We need to believe that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too difficult for God. Let's focus our eyes, our, our hearts on Jesus. 
following him, casting all things that would distract us from following him, the sin in our lives, setting ourselves apart for him like the, pre, like the Israelites consecrated themselves, being totally devoted to him and what he wants for us and then being ready to respond and move when God directs. For Israel, this is the first step into the land that God had promised them, the beginning of a long journey to possess what God was giving them. And there'll be more challenges. First one's coming up next week, 10 kilometres away from the Jordan River, the city of Jericho. But as the people experience the Jordan River, they realise that nothing can stop God. God is with us today. Let's trust him to do the impossible in our lives, in our church. Let's keep on trusting. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you because you are God. You can do anything. Nothing is too hard for you. Even, even stopping a raging river in its tracks. Lord, help us to trust you more. Teach us to see difficulties in our, in our own lives from your perspective. When things are hard, when, when the way ahead seems insurmountable, help us to focus on you and your power. To look to Jesus and not to the raging river in front of us. Father, remind us daily that you are mighty, you are powerful, righteous and true. We have nothing to fear with you on our side. Lord, help us to be strong and courageous, even in hard times. Help us not to be terrified or discouraged. For you, the Lord our God, is with us wherever we go. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power your power in our lives and in our church. In you we put our complete trust, the God of the impossible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not going to keep you, but I just wanted to, to finish up um, with another story um, out of Joshua. After the Israelites had crossed the Jordan and were safely on the other side, we read in chapter 4 that Joshua told 12 men, one from each tribe, to go back into the river and pick up large stones. You'll see my very poor representation of 12 large stones on the communion table. I did make an attempt to make some really large ones out of cardboard and they were a disaster, so they are still in my garage at home. Um, They were to take these stones and build this monument on the banks of the Jordan on the Canaan side as a reminder to the people of the amazing thing God had done. This is what Joshua said to the people in verse 21 of chapter 4. In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we reached or until we crossed over. He did this so that all people on the earth might know the hand of the Lord is powerful, so that you might always fear the Lord your God. These stones, not those, the big ones, were a constant reminder to the people 
for generations to follow of what God had done, how God had delivered, how God had protected, had guided his people, a testimony to the character, the promises of God. Our hope is founded on the God who does mighty things, the God who amazes, the God of the impossible. The Israelites needed to be reminded of what God had done in the past, just like we need to be reminded as well. That's why we have a communion, a communion table, have celebrate communion because we remember what Jesus did for us. We need to revisit the goodness of God. We need to remember what God has done for us, his mercies, his blessings, to recall what he has done in our midst. Recalling helps us remember. To remember how God has provided himself in the past. And because he's God, never changes, he will continue to provide for us in the future. On the table, there's the representation of a river. And on, in the river are little stones. I was going to grab one, I'll just point you to that direction. As you leave today, I invite you to come up to the table and take one of those little stones. It's just small. Take it home with you. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it regularly. Maybe on your windowsill in your kitchen. Maybe in your bathroom. Maybe beside your bed. Maybe on your desk. Wherever you might see it regularly. And every time you see it, may it be a reminder to you of what God has done for you. His blessings. May it be a reminder for you to recall God's goodness, God's character, God's power the way that he's met your needs through the years, maybe even yesterday. And as you remember, as you recall what God has done, may that help you to trust him for what's ahead, to trust him whatever the difficulties are ahead of you, the challenges that you might be facing, the Jordans that are ahead of you. Let me leave you with this blessing. God is for you. He loves you. He redeemed you. He knows you by name. Go into this week assured of his presence, assured of his power, rejoicing in his faithfulness to you, encouraging you to trust him even more every day, to trust him for more than you could ask, more than you could dream. May your week overflow with peace as you trust our amazing Saviour, as you walk with him. Amen.